I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When Asia controls your bank account and Asians control your technology and Asians control your content, you have no choice but to listen. You're listening to Crazy Smart Asia a podcast exploring the unexpected stories of Asia's disruptors. And not many successful entrepreneurs have a more unconventional story than this week's guest. Jason Ma is a musician, entrepreneur, and investor best known as the co-founder of 88 Rising, a music label, talent management, and media company that focuses on bridging East and West through culture, technology, and entertainment. But if 88 Rising commissioned Gen T to produce the movie of Jason's life, it would be really difficult to know where to start. Should it be with his early run-ins with the law? The years he spent as a celebrity preacher and evangelist? Or perhaps his career in music? Maybe it'd be when Bruno Mars featured on his third album, or when he launched the career of superstar Asian rapper and fellow Genty honoree, Rich Brian. Or you could start with his career as an entrepreneur. His early years working for musician and investor MC Hammer in Silicon Valley touring the likes of YouTube and Facebook when they had just a few employees. We might even start with this early investment in companies like Grab and Coinbase, leading with the story of how Paris Hilton helped him invest in TikTok. Thankfully, it's not a decision we have to make. Fitting the story into one podcast episode was tricky enough as it is. So in a slightly extended edition this week, Jason and Genty's Lee Williamson discuss the unconventional path Jason took to business success the power of cool, the importance of humility, and why the most difficult battle will always be with yourself. Oh, and they might also touch upon Jay-Z and the Illuminati. Much like the content he produces, Jason's life is pure box office. Strap yourself in for a wild ride. Here's our conversation. Jason, I don't want to go through a chronological account of your career or we'd be here all day. You've done a hell of a lot. Um... But I think maybe a good place to start, something that really sums up who Jason Ma is, is a story you told me before. It's the three pictures that you drew as a kid uh, when your parents asked you what you want to be. Um, can you tell us about that? What, what three things did you draw? So when I was seven years old, my father asked me what I want to be when I grew up. So I took out a piece of paper and some crayons and I drew three pictures of myself. Uh, first picture was me in a business suit with a suitcase and a tie in my hand. Second picture was me with a French Pierre cap and a paintbrush and a paint belt in my hand. And the third picture was me behind a church pulpit with a crucifix behind me, uh, preaching. And so my dad asked me in Cantonese, am I like, I'm like, what is this? And I said, well, dad, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be a businessman like you. Saturday, I'm going to be an artist. And Sunday, I'm going to be a preacher. And he said, in Cantonese, which means you're a little smart out. And, uh, there you go. You know, 30 years later, here I am. I've experienced each of those phases of life and careers in some way, form, or fashion. 
You have. Um, a question I often ask people is to tell me your biggest like aha moment in life, like a huge realization that changed the course of your life. In your case, um, you had a massive turning point, right? When you were just a teenager in the way that you changed life direction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I was a, I was a punk kid growing up, you know, I grew up with a single mom. Uh, dad was in and out. Um, it was a very dysfunctional situation. Um, you know, we lived paycheck to paycheck. My mom was, a, you know, doing daycare. She could barely afford the rent. Sometimes we didn't even know food was going to show up. And, um, you know, it was just a school of hard knocks. And so for me, the way I found solace or acceptance or friendship was hanging out with the local gangs. And so there's a lot of mm-hmm. local uh, East, Asia, East Asian, South Asian gangs, mainly Vietnamese and, and Cambodian in my neighborhood in San Jose where I grew up. And uh, just got myself in a bunch of trouble. Got arrested a bunch of times, um, you know, did community service. Uh, I was selling drugs, growing weed at a young age. And, you know, I was getting into fights, but my biggest problem was I was addicted to stealing. And so I just stole because I got a thrill out of it. Like, it really gave me, like, Mm. an adrenaline rush. And I guess this young kid with so much energy, it was like I had to put it somewhere. And unfortunately, Mm. I put it into a bad habit called theft. Um, But... Mm. You know, I got caught twice um, for some reason. Each time I got caught, you know, the cops let me go. And I got probation. I got community service hours, but I never had to go to juvenile hall um, until the third time was when it got really serious. And that's when I was working at an Italian suit store in the Great Mall, which was in the Bay Area where I lived in San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland Bay Area. And um, I was working at this Italian suit store and I was stealing Armani Valentino suits with my buddies of mine that worked with me, there was three of us and we ran this little trifecta <laughs> triad ring. And you were just handing them out, handing them out the back. That's right. I guess counting them, miscounting them, you know, and misreporting. And we were selling tens of thousands of dollars worth of Armani Valentino suits every month. And we split it and we all made a bunch of money. And one day I get a phone call saying from my mom, the cops from the line, they said they have a hidden video camera of you stealing from your store and, and they're coming with a warrant to come arrest you. So I literally pick up phone in my kitchen, I remember, and I called the cops myself. And I was like, hey, my name's Jason Ma. I uh, heard you guys are coming out to arrest me. And um, I know you guys are BSing. You guys don't have any evidence. Catch me if you can. And they're like, <laughs> we have a warrant out for you, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure, whatever. I hang up the phone. And I have this aha moment, this epiphany. I'm mm. 16 years old. About to be 17 i'm getting horrible grades my mom's praying for me and crying every day i'm getting in trouble i've been arrested and i have everything i have money i have you know things that i wanted but yeah i just felt empty and i didn't know what it was and um you know, I had this weird thought, like I need to come clean. And so I called my mom, my mom, I gotta be honest with you, but I did it. And she was like, okay. And so she's like, what does that mean? I was like, well, I don't know what I should do. If I turn myself in, I'm probably gonna go to jail. And she was like, well, I don't want you to go to jail. And so I'm like, okay, so what do I do? And my mom's like, I don't know, give him a couple shirts. <laughs> I'm like, mom, that's not telling the truth. And right. in my head, I'm like, Mom, this is a random question, but 
And I haven't been to church in six years. And I was like, what do you think Jesus would do if he was in my position? And true story, my mother literally verbatim said, Jason, Jesus, don't steal. And I was like, <laughs> I know that, mom. But if he was in my situation, what would he do? And she was like, mm -hmm. well, he'd probably turn himself in to get rid of his sin so that he could get right with God and start his life over again. And when she said that to me, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, this is what I need to do. I need to, I need to just fess up and get honest because I haven't just hurt others. I haven't just hurt myself. I've hurt God. And I was like, mm -hmm. I need to get right with God. And so I, my mom's like, just pray to God that the cops have mercy on you. So I walk in the police station and the police are like, you're Jason Ma, and they're ready to cuff me. And they see me with these two big garbage bags and they're not expecting me to tell the truth. And they're just mm. like, what is all this? And I'm like, look, is everything I have left? There's probably more out there, but you just want to come clean. And, you know, they're like, no, why are you doing this? I'm like, look, I'm just trying to get my life right with God. And they're like, interesting. And so the main cop was like, I haven't done this in 20 years of my career. He said, but when I saw you with two big garbage bags in your hand, it's like I heard a voice in my head say to me, there's something different about this kid. Give him a second chance. And I was like, what? And he was like, look, man, I think you're a good kid. You probably need some help and some therapy, but I'm going to let you go today. You're not going to have to post bail. But with your court case and your record, 99% chance you're still going to have to go to, you know, to jail. But you know, at least I'll let you go for now. And I'm like, yo, that's enough of a miracle for me. And so yeah. he lets me go. And I'm like, what just happened? A bigger miracle happens. They let go of my, or they lose my court case for six months. You know, only get a letter in the mail within two to three weeks, say, stating your court date. And that was Providence. During those six months, I became a Jesus freak. I flipped 180, went from straight S and D's to straight A's, started you know, getting along with my mother, right? Started a hip hop Bible mm. study, brought a hundred of my friends that were from my, they're either my drug weed clients or shroom clients or, you know, my my gang friends that I'd go and, you know, jump kids with or, you know, literally the theater department kids. And I brought them all to the hood <laughs> in this little church in the east side of San Jose on Tuesday nights. We started this hip hop Bible study and I brought them to a Billy Graham crusade and they all got saved. And I started a little revival in my high school, my senior year. And so lo and behold, six months later, a letter comes in the mail and says, you got to go to court. And I'm like, oh man, I guess I'm going to go start my jail ministry. I'm going to go to jail and tell people about Jesus in jail. And uh, you felt more ready for it, I guess though, right? You started to put your life on the right track. Yeah. I was just like, at that point, my life was in God's hands. It was no longer mine. And I was just like, you know what, God, wherever you take me, whether it's jail or outside jail, my, my life is yours. And um, I go to court. I, I plead guilty to all charges. They postpone my case three times. And the judge just pronounces me not guilty. He's like, you know, we made a decision and you can go free. And I'm like, what? I was like, I don't, wow. I don't have to go to jail. He's like, no. I was like, don't pay the company back money. He's like, no. I was like, tell me I got, you know, like community service. He's like, no community service. I was like, what, I, what about like my probation officer? He's like, when you walk out this courtroom, She'll no longer be your probation officer. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. He's like, just get out of here. And I was just like, thank you, sir. Um, yeah. What else do you say to that? Exactly. And I walked out that courtroom, San Jose PD, downtown LA at the time, and looked up at the sky and was like, you know, 
sunny sky, birds chirping. And I'm like, God, you're the nicest dude I ever met in my life. And my life is yours. Very few people get that kind of second chance, you know, beyond like a life-threatening illness. Like that level of like, you know, going from one one direction and then turning around and doing a 180. Um, and then, as you said, my life is yours. You then, um, there's many steps uh, from, from there to being a missionary, but you eventually became a missionary. Um, is there a particular memory that defines that experience for you? I imagine you saw a lot of stuff. Because um, I know you traveled the world preaching, um, a lot of um, traveling in the, within the U.S. as well. I imagine you saw a lot of stuff that most of us uh, can only imagine. I've seen small miracles. I've seen big miracles. I've seen lives being changed, hearts being touched. I've seen supernatural things like people that couldn't walk all of a sudden walk people that didn't have an eyeball all of a sudden have an eyeball grow out in front of my eyes. I've had what? Yeah. <laughs> like someone that's completely blind. Yeah. In Nepal, I remember. And this old lady laid hands on her and all of a sudden she like, you could see something forming. She had no eye socket and literally an eye literally just formed in front of us. And she could see it was, everyone starts screaming and everyone gave their life to Christ. Like, there was stuff like that that I saw and like exorcisms. I was like the stuff I saw the most of. I used to do exorcisms everywhere. Um, and uh, do they look like they do in the movies? Pretty exact. Yeah. Like you can see another body pushing through the physical body. Right. You can see, mm. I've seen heads twist, right? 360. I've seen tongues wow. come out two feet long. I've seen eyes go completely black multiple times. Um, people with crazy voices and languages that are not human. Um, levitation, seen that a few times. Um, levitation, people literally hovering off the ground. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And little girls with supernatural strength, just throwing guys like 180, 200 some pounds, like toys, just throwing them off like craziness. Yeah. And so of the thousands of stories and memories, is there one that particularly resonates or that you still think about, you know, every day or very, very regularly that, that, that stays with you for whatever reason, whether it heartwarming, whether it be shocking, whatever it may be? I remember one time, this early when I was a Christian, and I just started reading. And I remember the first day I read from Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy which is basically the Pentateuch, the first five books, what they call in Hebraic uh, terminology, the Torah. Those are the foundational mm. books. And when I was done with Deuteronomy, I kid you not, I felt like a bolt of electricity hit through the wall, go through my entire body, and I'm just like on the ground shaking, right? And I feel like electricity go through my entire body frame and I'm shaking and I don't know if I'm getting alien abducted. I don't know what's going on, but especially mm. my hands and my fingers, I can't bend them. Like I literally couldn't bend them and I didn't know what was going on. I felt like this heat waves going through my, my hands. And then all of a sudden it kind of just after like an hour, kind of just dissipated a little bit. I ended up reading the Bible and I, in four and a half days from beginning to end, nonstop. Hmm. I ended up the last two days 
and a half, not drinking any water and not even having, I never ended up having a bite of the bread. But I felt so energized. And after each night when I was done, the same thing would happen. The presence of God would come, it would hit me like lightning, I'd get knocked out on the ground, and I would just like shake under God's power for like for like an hour or two. But the last day, it hit me so hard after I, I, I read the last passage of Revelation, and it said, do not let anyone add another word to this book, amen. And I mm. thought I was physically gonna explode. The presence of God was so strong. I, I like, yeah. I want to strip naked and I want to, and I started, I didn't strip naked, but I literally started running around the Santa Cruz mountains, yelling at the top of my lungs and telling the mountain across from me to throw itself into the sea. Cause that's how much faith I felt that I had. Of course, the mountain didn't do that, <laughs> but you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I, and, and it was like this supernatural, uh, presence that was so that you can never, no one can ever tell me that God's not real. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you believe in trees. I don't care if you believe in science and astronomy. I don't care. Whatever. Whatever I experience there, I will mm. never, ever in my life, ever be able to deny the manifest presence of a supernatural God that exists. And that is something that no matter how dark or how light, how up or how down I am in my life and my journey has always mm. reminded me that God is real. And when you have an encounter with his presence, it's just undeniable. What is your reaction when you tell people these stories and they say, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic myself. I'm not a man of faith myself. You know, people who say things like that can be rationalized by the awesome um, unexplored potential of the human mind, of, of the human body, of so many things we don't understand. And that while the impact on you may have been um, massive, and life changing it doesn't it's not necessarily evidence of a divine intervention do you do you pity people like me because they don't understand that like what's your when people don't buy into those stories what's your reaction i think everyone believes in god but they choose to believe in the god that they want to believe in so you either believe god is good or you believe he's bad you either believe he's distant or you believe he's close right you either believe that he doesn't exist or he does exist. Um, but you all, everyone has a concept of, 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 of God. And so for me, it's never, hey, you need to experience what I experience. Because there's a lot of people, obviously, like looks into these crazy ass stories I just shared. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you're probably sitting here like this guy's Looney Town, right? Like, what is he talking about? Like, this guy's legit nuts. Like, why am I even interviewing him on this podcast? So so my thing is like, <laughs> but I can't shake that experience. I can't, you know, yeah. undeny it myself because that's something I experience. It's the same thing with exorcisms. Like I've seen people levitate. Like I said, I've seen people talk in crazy languages and, and, and tongues come out their mouth that shouldn't be that long. I've seen, you know, things that are completely un- illogical, scientifically unexplainable and defying the laws of gravity and how can you deny that when you've seen it right that's it's so if you haven't seen it yo i ain't faulting you at all (laughs) okay because Mm -hmm. 
go and believe in Einstein and believe in Darwinism and believe in science because that is what works every day, right? I drop a pen and it falls mm-hmm. to the ground, right? I, you know, mm-hmm. the laws of gravity are the laws of gravity. But if you experience something that is so contradicting to what we understand as possible, and then you experience something that is technically impossible, it, and then you try to figure out scientifically, like, could that be scientifically explained? But the way that you experience it, there's nothing that's telling you it can. You default yeah. to the belief that, you know what? That was supernatural. That was God. It seems like you then took that into your life as an entrepreneur. So after many years of preaching and and um, and, and spreading uh, the word of, of the Bible, being a missionary around the world, you then turn to business, which is interesting in itself because most people go to business, make a lot of money, and then find Jesus. Yes. You did it the other way around. <laughs> but what I think is really interesting is you seem to take that like there is no impossible, only not done yet or not seen often, and you took that mentality into your business life. Can you give us a kind of a brief overview of what you did then from being a missionary and your early steps uh, in the business world. There's a lot of people that think Jason Ma is this fallen angel who was once high and holy with God and mm. fell from grace um, and started partying in Hollywood and and, right. and became this this Hollywood you know agent entrepreneur you know and 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 loving and, 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 and enjoying the things of the world. And so a lot of people look at me as a walking contradiction. Like how right. could this person that went from Holyville to Hollywood? Mm. Um, and I don't blame them. If I was on the outside looking in, right? It was like you said, a lot of times you, you, go and become a successful businessman or whatever. And after you made millions of dollars, you hear from God that you should give it all away and become a missionary or a pastor. That's the story that most people know. Most of the time you don't hear the inverse. You become this little junior Asian Billy Graham. And then all of a sudden you start a company like 80 rising (laughs) and and give birth to a rapper like Rich Brian. Right. So like that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, But you know, when I look at the life of Jesus, he was very unorthodox. Like he got hanged for not being religious, right? He got crucified because he was counterculture to the religious elite, right? He didn't right. fit in to, you know, the religious confines and structures. And so there was a point where I remember I was praying one day. And at this time I was speaking to maybe a thousand to tens of thousands of youth a night uh, across the world in mm. these evangelistic rallies. But I started getting really disillusioned. I just thought to myself, am I really making an impact? And am I really touching lives by saying my prayers and giving my speeches and sermons over and over again? To me, it felt like the same group of kids at the same Christian conferences. And I thought about it. And I'm like, you know, there's conspiracy theories that Jay-Z is Illuminati, Freemason, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. he's, you know, deep into all this dark, you know, conspiracy theory, you know, darkness, right? And so I thought to myself, well, does Jay-Z go around to junior Freemason youth conferences and <laughs> proselytize and evangelize and 
tell these junior Freemasons how to become one day a 33rd degree <laughs> Mason. And if you do this and do it this way, you're just going to be the biggest, darkest badass in the world, right? For Satan, yeah. right? Like, and I'm thinking to myself, no, that is exactly <laughs> not what Jay-Z does. What does Jay-Z do? He starts a record label called Rock Nation and Rockefeller Records. And who does he sign? Rihanna and Kanye West and Chris Brown or whoever all these artists are, right? And mm. and he impacts the world subversively through media, through music, yeah. through fashion, through content, through film, through technology, through these few artists or disciples that then go and infiltrate millions and billions of eyeballs. So then I realized, yeah. wow, Jesus actually did the same thing. Jesus didn't spend most of his time preaching at conferences and big giant churches. He spent most of his time with 12 disciples, 12 mm -hmm. artists that were signed to his 88 rising. Okay. Uh, right. and, and what did Jesus do most of the time? He actually said it himself. He said, when he speaks to the lost, he never speaks with preaching or 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 religious words. He said he only speaks to the masses because eye is not seen and ears not heard, a heart cannot comprehend with parables. What are parables? Parables are stories. Okay. He mm. always used stories to communicate. In other words, what are our modern day parables? Well, they're films. It's Braveheart. It's it's a wonderful life. It's the movie Her. Mm. It's the movie Inside Out. It's the latest when all my friends right now are telling me you gotta watch uh, on, on Disney Plus this movie Soul. It'll change your life, right? Yeah. They're parables, yeah. right? And 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 who was Jesus's motley crew, these 12 young people that didn't give an F and willing to die for him, right? And and be a part of this revolution, right? And so right. anyway, so to me, Jesus sounds a lot more like Wall Street bets on Reddit mobilizing an army against the evil Wall Street and, and buying game stocks, meme stocks. You know what I'm saying? Like that yeah. to me was the spirit of Christ. So anyway, so he's, he's, when I was praying, he spoke to me and he was like, Jason, you can either impact a thousand in one night with, with your preaching, or you can impact 10 that will impact tens of millions, right? If you influence those who have influence. And so that was mm -hmm. when I decided I'm going to leave. And I need to go back into media and entertainment. And I started my first music label slash digital content network. Um, and at that time, it was called Adventures.tv and ADVN. And it was with a, a group called Plan C, PCA. And that was, uh, we had a management arm that managed a little group called Forest Movement, a rapper named MC Jin. And uh, a little writer. That this was early 2000s, Mars. right? This was 2006, yeah. 2007. Yeah, that's when I yeah. first, first, first met Carl at the time. And then uh, I invested in the company, and uh, and then everything literally sparked from there. Yeah, you had a, 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 a meeting with MC Hammer, which I think really accelerated, catalyzed things with you as well, right? Yeah, I mean, MC was actually before I was a missionary. MC was my first real boss. I was working at a startup in Cupertino, California, across from Apple Computer. Mm. And then I, I was running my hip hop Bible study, and I used to listen to MC Hammer preach at this uh, Sunday night Bible study, this mega church. Yeah. And it was like the greatest thing on earth. It's MC Hammer preaching, right? <laughs> Reading the Bible to you. Yeah. And um, I had this good idea that I should invite him to come speak and perform at our once a year hip hop outreach. And he said, I'm going to come and do it. I'm down. And then he looked at me, he's like, what do you do? And I was like, 
I worked at this technology startup. We, we make small websites for medium-sized, small, medium-sized businesses. It was like, mm. you're Asian. You must know how to use computers. You should come work for me. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, I invest in startups. I'm a venture capitalist. And um, the rest is history. I quit my job. Right. And uh, he was at the ground floor of YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Salesforce when all these companies were less than 20 people each. It was crazy. And I used to just drive him around right. to all these meetings. I didn't know what was going on. Um, but yeah. The second season of Crazy Smart Asia is sponsored by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. We live in a dynamic and ever-changing world where innovation leads the way. A world facing unprecedented challenges. We need to change the way we create and consume to fuel the next wave of change and build a brighter, more sustainable tomorrow. BNP Paribas Wealth Management is proud to support Crazy Smart Asia on its mission to tell the stories of inspiring leaders who are doing just Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. At. I, I, I want to I move on because I, I want to talk to you about that power of uh, culture to influence, like, like you just mentioned. Um, at Gen T, we write a lot about what's called the Asian century, right? It's the idea that the 19th century belonged to Europe, the 20th century was America's, and this is the century, the 21st, where Asia will rise. And that's not just hype, right? Like it's actually transpiring, at least in terms of economic wealth. Uh, within this year, within 2021, Asian economies are going to be larger than the rest of the world combined for the first time since the 19th century. But, right, in terms of cultural output, in terms of cultural influence on a global level, Asia is still nowhere near the West. Um, it seems that you've bet your career on the idea that that's going to change soon. So I guess my question to you is, how is that going to happen? Like, what is uh, the future look like for, for Asian culture? And it's, I assume impending dominance well first we need to understand something that asia's existed a lot longer than the west right europe mm. and the americas is a very recent thing this is not a yeah. multi-thousand year uh, uh empire culture as we know it. and so it's really just coming back to where it started right Right. And so, sure, uh, I think because of American culture, whether it's Hollywood or whether it's sports or whether it's Wall Street, uh, for the last almost 300 years, uh, North America has dominated. Um, and that's what the world has known. Um, but it's very evident, as you said, 
Who has the biggest economy in the world? Well, Asia. Who has the biggest military in the world now? China. Who has the most disposable income? Millennial and Gen Z Asian young people, not yep. American youth. Um, yep. Who are more technologically advanced in social media? Asia by yep. a decade plus, right? Um, and so when you just look at it by sheer number and you look at it by just sheer uh, demographic and geographics, it's inevitable that Asia is going to rise and Asia will become the most dominant force, not just in economics, not just in politics, but in mm. culture. And so that's what you're seeing with the rise of K-pop. That's what you're seeing with movies like Parasite. That's what you're seeing, yeah. right, with the 88 Risings. This is just on the music level. But look at Hypebeast. Look at fashion. Look at food, right? It's like back in the day when I was Asian, because I'm older, right, it wasn't cool to be Asian. Now if you're a kid and you're Gen Z and you're on TikTok and you're wearing some Yeezys and some Supreme, you're going to be like, man, I want to look like what they look like in that K-pop video, right? What they look mm -hmm. like in the streets of Shinjuku in, in Tokyo. What hype these kids are wearing in Hong Kong, right? I want to look mm -hmm. like that kid in my school. I'm this random little white kid with nothing, and there's this random international Chinese student at my high school with the with a Maserati, right? And you're just yeah. like, what is going on, right? And so the power play has totally switched, and it's clear and evident in the U.S.-China trade war. Right. What are two things that the West is terrified of right now? It's very simple. China from the east, Asia and Taliban from the west of Asia. OK, hmm. <laughs> they are completely frightened. Right. Because they know that Asia is taken over. Right. And hmm. so I think really what's happening is. I'm not going to say it's the fall of the West and the rise of the East, but I think it's a transition from the quote unquote influence and power of the West now fully transitioning over the next 10 years into the influence and the power of the East. And it's inevitable. Mm. And do you think we're going to see a blending of the two as K-pop and Korean soap operas and, and, and movies and so on become popular in the West? You know, 88 Rising, one of the things you do is you bring, you know, you meld East and West cultures together. In the next 10, 20 years, will there be a need for a company like 88 Rising? Will you need to evolve as like just naturally that starts to happen? I think it's going to be no longer East-West. I think it's just going to become yeah. mainstream. And right. so... You know, I believe Asia still does not have its own CNN or BBC or Fox or Vice or right. New York Times, right? Maybe the closest would be a South China Morning Post or mm. uh, Tatler, right? Gen T, right? But even that is not penetrating, right? The, the streets of Los Angeles or, or the streets of Wall Street, right? And so yeah, but what's, not, yet. What, not yet, but what's going to happen is Asia's going to have its own media voices, its own platforms, right? And the world's going to have to listen because they're not going to be able to not listen or afford to be given the opportunity to turn the other cheek or turn the other way and not listen because they control too much. When Asia yeah. controls your bank account and Asians control your technology and Asians control your content 
and Asians control your fashion and Asians control your access to energy and oil and power. You have no choice but to listen, right? And mm. that was what the inverse was for the last whatever, you know, 50 years. America controlled all these resources, right? Or all these assets yeah. and the world had to listen, right? But now America completely in disarray, divided. The Bible says if a house is divided, how can it stand? Like I've never seen America like this in my entire life as a U.S. citizen, right? And I can, mm. I can, I can confidently and convicted wise say I am no longer in the America that I grew up in. This is not mm. America anymore. This is a America that is divided and controlled by big tech and social media and cancel culture, hashtag this, hashtag yeah. that. That's the new quote unquote big brother. The new big brother yeah. is Twitter, right? The new big brother right. is Facebook, right? The new big brother is Google, right? Uh, and that to me is like, whoa, okay, you want to talk about CCP and communism. Well, why don't you go talk to Mark Zuckerberg, right? Why don't you go talk, right, to, to, to these powerful players that can shut down and shut up and bring up and bring down anyone they want. And so anyways, my point is, is that when you have not just tens and dozens, but hundreds of books about the China threat, right? <laughs> Thousands of podcasts, articles, it's because people see it. They, they, they perceive it and they are anticipating and acknowledging that there's a new boss in town. Um, one of the uh, things I want to get into is your ability to um, spot trends early. So talking about Silicon Valley, talking about the power of, of, of Facebook and, and TikTok and so on. You know, whether you were an early investor in TikTok, you got Bruno Mars to sing on your record before he was the Bruno Mars when, when you were um, a hip hop artist in your um, earlier career. Or, you know, you were in Silicon Valley in the early days when YouTube was just a few people with a crazy, crazy idea. I think that's so important, right? I saw Jack Ma speak a few years ago, and uh, the interviewer said, so what's hot right now? And he was like, the first thing is, whatever's hot, don't pay any attention to that, because the opportunities have already gone. He's like, you've got to look for things that are super, super cold. And it seems like you've done that a lot. You've got in before things got hot. But that's really difficult to do, right? Futurology is far from an exact science. So can you share any kind of insight? How have you been able to spot trends before they happen? Is there a kind of toolkit you go to, a kind of system? I think that challenges or problems create opportunities. Hmm. So I don't look for ideas. I look for problems. I don't look for innovations. I look for challenges. And that is where great entrepreneurs become. They recognize that there's a problem in the market that doesn't have a solve. And they recognize that they have access to resources and ideas that can actually answer those problems and create a solution. And yeah. so that is what a great venture capitalist or a great entrepreneur can discern and see, oh, kids don't have that. But they want that, but no one's providing that. And this idea or this product is serving that desire and need. So, mm -hmm. for instance, Musical.ly, right? When I yeah. found Musical.ly, when I can't say I found it, uh, our firm, Goodwater Capital, 
we tracked it through our data uh, uh, software. We have an internal data software that scours the internet every day for 4 million apps. And we can see every piece of metadata, every download, every comment, every point of metadata and retention we're able to collect. So we can see all of a sudden, whoa, what's this little app called Musical.ly? Like it's having kids spend mm. like crazy, almost 40 minutes a day. Like, what is this? And then we go in and it's this weird 12 to 15 year old white kids doing karaoke, you know, sessions yeah. in 15 Dancing to 60 to seconds. Songs. That's literally what music yeah. was, but it was so different and it was so engaging. And then it was mm-hmm. so different than anything we had ever seen. It wasn't Twitter. It wasn't YouTube. It wasn't Facebook. It was a whole nother way of interacting. And there wasn't anything in the market that was taking music and short form social into one and making it dynamic, right? The closest up to that Mm. point was Vine. And so right when I saw it and we saw the numbers, we were like, oh, there's there's something to this, right? And so I actually was in Shanghai, I remember, uh, because we were fighting for an allocation. Uh, The other top VCs uh, in the Valley were, you know, basically oversubscribing this early round. And uh, Mm. I remember Chihuahua was like, Jason, you got to help us because... We got to show the founders, this guy named Lewis in June, uh, that we will bring real value. Like, can you bring some celebrity, you know, to them to show them that you know our firm can can really bring 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 the juice? So I happened to be in yeah. Shanghai with Paris Hilton, and uh, I know it sounds random, so I was with Paris at the time, and she was there for Shanghai Fashion Week, and I was like, yeah. Paris. And you know, Paris is actually an innovator too. I mean, she created what we know as modern day influencer, right? And so she yeah. she's actually really smart in that sense. She sees trends as well. And I was like, Paris, check out this app. And she's like, oh, that's crazy. Like, how do you use it? And I was like, mm-hmm. you just kind of just record it, just kind of put a song to it, just like, you know, mix it up. And she's like, all right. And I was like, you got to come with me to meet the founders. They have their office in Shanghai and, <laughs> and they're going to freak out. They're going to freak out if you come. Yeah. And you'll be the first real celebrity on Musical.ly. Because up to that point, there was no real celebrity on Musical.ly. So I literally bring in Paris Hilton. She was wearing, I don't know what she was wearing. She was looking hot as hell. All right. And she's walking in to Musical.ly's office. And there's like 40 little Shanghainese kids, right? Like little engineer kids and prop kids just like. <laughs> and we sit down and, and, and literally the two founders show her how to use the app. And then she posts her first musically. And then we fly to Macau and I tell them, Hey, part of it, if you give us this deal, we're going to have Paris live stream for the first time on musically her DJ set for her, for her, her, her party and her club event in Macau. And we mm-hmm. did that. They freaked out. And then I was like, and if you give me a bigger allocation, I'm going to get you Ariana Grande. And they, right. and long story short, we delivered brought area on the platform and that was how we got to invest in musically early and then of course within 18 months it got acquired by bike dance and became and became tiktok so i mean what i'm getting there is like really one of the key things is how do you spot trends early you have a nose for it for sure which has to be trained but also you use a huge amount of data you had this huge kind of spider web crawling millions of apps and, and seeing the level of engagement and you could see what, what was there but then you took that and then you used the power of cool there's also something I want to ask you about because, you know, the power of cool has been a big factor in a lot of your ventures in kind of driving them forward. Like case in point, Triller, 
right? Which which you're also involved in, which in some ways is a rival to TikTok. You know, you're you're kind of hedging your, your bets there. But TikTok is paying musicians and content creators to upload videos, whereas you've said before that the biggest artists in the world are uploading their videos to Triller for free, right? So you can't buy that kind of marketing. So many brands try to be cool, and it blows up in their face massively and publicly. Um, how do you create buzz for like the people listening, entrepreneurs who are building like a B2C product? How do you build buzz and cool around a product or around a brand? Well, it always has to be authentic, right? Mm-hmm. When we were little, the trailer was tiny. It was like two years ago. Literally on the same day, DJ Cal gets paid seven figures to post on TikTok. And the next day, within a 24-hour period, he uploads a trailer video without us asking him. <laughs> and he goes, it's all about trailer. It's all about trailer in his, in his private jet plane. Mm. Something happens. Stussy or Massimo or a brand from Walmart can pay DJ Khaled $10 million to wear their T-shirt or hold their bag. Mm. Supreme will never have to pay DJ Khaled to hold a Supreme bag or wear a Supreme T-shirt. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's about how you position the brand and how you create the content or the perception of what that brand stands for, right? And Mm -hmm. Triller was always uniquely different. When I saw Triller back in 2018, it was niche, similar TikTok, but mainly focused on black and brown and South Asian culture in America. It was mainly the hip-hop culture, right? It was mainly rappers and dancers and and, and hip-hop culture creators creating content on children. And a lot yeah. of the early rappers and the early uh, 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 community of Triller did it because they saw other rappers on Triller and they saw other rappers on Triller and they saw other artists and they saw other dancers and they're like, hey, you know, it's cool with them, it's cool with me, right? Same effect with music. You have a little white kid in a suburb, right, in Wisconsin, and that affects another little white kid in the suburb of Arkansas, right? So it just right. automatically hit its own demographic. And I believe in the blue ocean strategy, which is focus on one thing, always focus on one niche, right? Yeah. If you focus on that one thing, you can have everything, right? And so Jay-Z started with one thing, being an incredible rapper. 30 years later, he owns the Brooklyn Nets, okay? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so what's that one thing, right? And so for me, I knew hip hop had become a part of Triller's culture and brand. And I was like, own it, own it, own it, own it, own that, right? Because if you own the streets, you own the culture. You own hip hop, you own the pop charts, right? And that goes to the masses. And so went with that edge and immediately it became something cool. And like you said, the power of cool. Once something's cool, you don't need to pay for cool. Yeah. Cool is not paid for. Cool is innovated, ideated, and created. We'll be right back with Lee and Jason. But first, let's hear from Grace Tam, Chief Investment Advisor, Hong Kong, at BNP Paribas Wealth Management. She talks to Lee about the Asian century and the opportunities investors should be looking out for. With Jason Ma, we're talking about this being the Asian century. 
How is this transpiring in the key industries fueling Asia's rise? Technology, as you know, is always a focus, and Asia is the manufacturing powerhouse for a number of tech products, for example, like smartphones, and in particular for semiconductors that power almost every chip in the world. And leading manufacturers in Taiwan and also South Korea, they are front runners of high-end chips. And also, Asia is now considered an active hotbed for innovation across spectrum of industries like fintech, healthcare, and robotics. Increasingly, so the rest of the world is trading with Asia. What are the early opportunities that investors should be looking out for? Alternative investments, for example, private equity, have been gaining popularity in Asia for high net worth investors. Institutional investors, for example, like sovereign wealth funds, university endowments, etc., they all have a decent exposure to private equity for portfolio diversification. The weakness of investing in private equity is always its lack of liquidity. Having said that, longer-term investors they are rewarded with potentially more attractive expected returns by sacrificing short-term liquidity. With the disruption that COVID nineteen has caused, um, how would you describe the post-pandemic Asian investor? No doubt, the pandemic has accelerated the digital trend, and this explains the impressive rally of the tech sector last year. And apart from tech, climate investing and sustainable and responsible investments, or SRI, are gaining traction. Stimulus packages from many governments in the world to revive their economies have included a lot of green agenda items, as many countries have set aggressive targets to reduce carbon emissions. And we also have been seeing strong inflows into the SRI or the ESG themes. And now back to the show. Tech has changed media so much in the past twenty years. Right, like the the, the the old hegemony of the big networks and the big studios on content has gone because of technology. Because anyone can build an app and anyone can be where everybody's paying attention to anymore. You don't need a broadcast license. You don't need to print a newspaper. Right? That has absolutely changed everything. And your career has really all been at the confluence of tech and media the whole time. I think you know one of the key distinguishing factors has really been. You didn't wait for your, the system, the traditional system for Hollywood, for big studios to give you your shot. You just went and created your own systems, right? Um, you That's didn't right. bang on. You didn't bang on Hollywood's door. You found these new platforms, or got in early and developed these new platforms, and brought them to Hollywood. I think that taking control of your destiny and controlling your path is really the core of what being an entrepreneur is. So, how do you do that? And what advice can you give to entrepreneurs based in Asia who want to know what's that secret sauce? How do you do that? Well, as has been quoted or said many times, I'll paraphrase it. It's like, don't wait for your seat at the table. Create your own table. Yeah. And I always knew no one was going to help me. Right. Meaning, I came from nothing. I came from yeah. the streets. I came from a single parent family home. I came from a house that didn't know if we we're going to eat the next night or, or be able to make rent that month. I didn't come from an affluent Chinese family. I didn't have. Connections. I didn't have anything, so I knew from the very beginning I had to learn to figure out real fast how to survive. And once you can get through that Maslow hierarchy of basic survival, like food, clothes yeah. on my back, house over my head. Once I got that 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 part figured out, okay, then I could actually think about, okay, what else 
as possible, right? And at every given moment, my point is, I knew no one was going to give me a hand out to give me a hand up. And I never waited or expected anyone to help me get anywhere, right? Yeah. And so I always had the mentality that no one's going to help you but yourself, right? And if no one's going to help you but yourself, there's – everyone always says this. God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible, okay? (laughs) That that is not in the Bible. But we know now that you know it's not in the Bible. But there's a ton of truth in that. God helps those who help themselves. And I always used to say, pray like it all depends on God, but live like it all depends on you. In other words, Hmm. no effing excuses. Okay? Like, you work your ass off. You work hard towards something that you want. And if you put your mind to it and you invest your 10,000 hours, it's 90% blood, sweat, and tears. And yes, it's 10% luck, right? Yeah. But if you do the right thing, not because it's going to make you money or make you famous or make you powerful, but you do the right thing over and over again because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Ultimately, you will achieve what you're out to achieve. And I'm not saying that for everyone, but I am saying that end of the day, you got to do it yourself. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to put it in the 10,000 hours. You've also got to have an eye on the future, right? To look at those, so not looking at what's possible and what's not possible now, but looking at, it seems like you've always looked at what's going to be possible and putting in the 10,000 hours to getting ahead of the game. I think the people that I've met who are the brightest the wisest and the most disruptive are humble. Yep. They are always learning. They are always observing. They are always reading. They are always listening. Mm. They're more observant than they are talking. They watch and they recognize that they know what they know, but they don't know at all. Humility is absolutely critical to a heart that's in a position that is willing to absorb and learn and grow. If you stop listening, you stop learning. If you stop learning, you stop growing. If you stop growing, you become stagnant. If you become stagnant, you eventually deplete and die. What makes us progress is not our physical body it's our mind and if you can continually feed the mind and grow the mind and sustain the mind with new information that is healthy information correct information positive information stimulating information challenging information you can continually grow and things even more possibilities become possible right and I'm going to ask you a couple of final questions, Jason. This is a question that I ask to every guest on this podcast. You're a successful person. A lot of people want to be sat in your chair where you are right now and won't get there for whatever reason. What do you think is the one difference that has got you to where you are today? Resilience. Not making excuses. Learning to right my wrongs and correct my mistakes 
and find good people around me that know more than me Mm. to advise me on how I can become a better version of me. And that takes a lot of humility, a lot of fighting through depression and anxiety, and a lot of self-acceptance to accept yourself in the midst of your flaws and your weakness and to still move forward. That is not an easy thing to do because most people, after they lose once, they quit. After they lose twice, they quit forever. After they lose three times, they just fully give up. Like someone asked Elon Musk, you know, what type of encouragement would you give to entrepreneurs who want to succeed? And he said, if you're an entrepreneur, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you need encouragement, don't be an entrepreneur. <laughs> because <Right. laughs> it's a right. it's a thankless, no encouragement job. And the more successful you are, the more people hate you, the more people despise you, the more people judge you, the more people think you're evil, the more people want to take from you, want to take you down, want to kill you, right? It's it's you become a target for people's insecurities. And, you know, I don't really consider myself successful. I don't think, you know, I'm some anything, but I will say this, I am the most successful version of myself and there's still a lot more to improve, but my competition every day is not you or you or you, my competition is me. And mm. that's just what I'm trying to win at is just become mm. a better version of me on a daily basis. And if our listeners take away just one insight from this conversation, is it that, is it to quote a hip hop reference as Kendrick said, be humble? To me, the one word that I follow as a mantra is humility. If I'm not hungry every day, then I stop growing as a person. And hunger comes from humility. Jason, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. <laughs> I, I hope I, I didn't freak you out, but uh, it's, uh, it's it was quite fun. And thank you for uh, uh, hearing all the different variances of, of, of my life in the last hour. It's been it's been a, it's been a fun conversation. That's it for another episode of Crazy Smart Asia. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And please do leave us a rating and a review while you're at it. Next week, I'll be talking with Bino Chodari, politician, philanthropist, entrepreneur, and Nepal's only billionaire. In a fascinating conversation, we touched on risk, resilience, and the one thing entrepreneurs need to succeed that no business school will teach you. I can't wait to share it with the world. Until then, try to remember... Jesus, don't steal. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.